This is one of these things where it's a coin toss, except the Tails has four more grams of copper on it. Because right now, Biden's not getting all the habitual Democratic voters behind him on a, on a how's he doing on the economy. So until that's fixed, they're really screwed. What have we learned so far about this election cycle? And what does it tell us about what's likely to happen in the midterm elections of 2022 and the Democratic and GOP primaries for president in 2024? Well, historically, California has often previewed our national political future. Richard Nixon started there, turning the communist threat and the Cold War into themes in his early political campaigns. Ronald Reagan redefined conservatism during his two terms as governor. Proposition 187 was a ballot issue in 1994 before immigration became a national political issue. It helped get then-California Governor Pete Wilson re-elected on the issue of immigration. Celebrity candidate Arnold Schwarzenegger got elected governor there a year before the first season of The Apprentice. The state's size and diversity make it a political country within a country, a population of 40 million people, the fifth largest economy in the world, and a whopping 22 million registered voters, all in one state. Longtime GOP campaign strategist Mike Murphy has been on the front lines and often the mastermind of some of these California campaigns, as well as plenty of national campaigns, too. I want to get Mike's view on the political crack-up sparked by the breakdown in quality of life and civil order that his fellow Californians are experiencing, as are Americans almost everywhere. And what about the impact of everything from inflation to the future of Roe versus Wade? Mike's worked on 26 gubernatorial and U.S. Senate races across the country, including 12 wins in blue states, something that's getting harder and harder to do for Republican strategists. Mike was a top strategist for John McCain, Mitt Romney, Jeb Bush, and Arnold Schwarzenegger, who I mentioned earlier. He's a political analyst for NBC and MSNBC. He's co-host of one of my favorite political podcasts, Hacks on Tap, which, if you're not a subscriber already, I highly recommend that you become one. He also pens a political newsletter, Hacks on Tap newsletter. And Mike's also a co-director of the University of Southern California's Center for the Political Future. Taking stock of where we are in 2022 and looking ahead to 2024, this is Call Me Back. And I am pleased to welcome back my, not my old friend, my longtime friend. Your Jurassic friend. <laughs> longtime friend, dating back to 1994, the first campaign uh, we worked on together, the Spence Abraham campaign. Uh, my right. uh, longtime friend, Mike Murphy, back to the conversation. Hey, Mike, how are you? I'm good, Dan. How are you doing? I'm good. Uh, I'm trying to um, make sense of this uh, crazy political moment, this crack up we're we're living through. And I figured there's no better person whose brain to pick than yours. So I appreciate you're doing it for a number of reasons, not the least of which is you you have encyclopedic knowledge, both as a student of political history, but of a practice as a practitioner of politics, but also because you're ground zero of of some of the crack up, which is California, which oh, I do yeah. want to... crazy times demand a crazy politics, Dan. <laughs> That's we're, right. we're so I want to, I want to, I want to talk to you about what's happening in California and what we're, what we're learning from it and what the implications are nationally. But before we, we, we zoom in on California, I just want to get a sense from you. 
nationally because whenever I want to gut check on what's going on, you, I, I, I try to check in with you. Um, it, it seems to me that everything that could be going wrong for Biden and the Democrats, I'm just, this is not an ideological point. It's not a partisan point. It's just a, I'm trying to be a analytical in that terms of, you know, first midterm of a, of a presidential, of a, of a presidency for the party in power is going to be under pressure. Uh, obviously, macro environments, inflation, et cetera. I mean, can you just walk us through, ne- like, wh- what are all the re- wh- why does it seem that, like, everything that could be going wrong for the Democrats, and it's not to say that everything's going well for the Republicans, but let's just start with the Democrats. Everything that could be going wrong seems to be going wrong. And what are the what are those things? Yeah, the, the Republicans are doing well by not doing anything, just not being the Democrats, because the Democrats have been sucked into this perfect storm. You know, if you combine it all, First, you had foreign events, which are, you know, maybe you can influence them, have a geopolitical strategy. But when you have a resource region, wheat and oil go to war uh, and cause all kinds of problems there. And then you have COVID respark, particularly in Asia, which is a supply chain nightmare. You know, economically, you have that all swirled together. And then you've got a new president elected who ran a pretty good campaign on, I'm boring and normal, no more crazy. How's that sound? I'm a nice, comfortable old shoe. But the minute after he got elected, decided, no, no, I'm going to be FDR. And, you know, we'd already gone very aggressive on the fiscal side with COVID aid. Basically, we're going to fight germs with dollars. Uh, And, you know, we've had low, low interest rates to inflate up the economy. So all this stuff starts combining. And then the pain comes. And the Biden guys, and I'll say I'm a Trump-hating Republican. I'm a conservative, but I voted for, for Biden because I can't abide Trump. But I, I didn't really get what I voted for, and a lot of the country didn't, which was that quiet stability. Instead, they got more crazy from the left, the same old crazy from the right. And instead of the Washington food fight issues that wore out the country, you had what we in the political campaign racket call gas and groceries which is where every voter, most voters, uh, Dan, I know you, you have people who handle this for you, but, but, but mo- most voters twice a week go get kicked in the teeth at the gas pump and the grocery line. I was line. at the gas pump last night, six plus bucks a gallon. I, I, it's, it's it, unbelievable. Yeah, we're up at seven here in California. Right. Well, that's because the know, tax, yeah. gas tax. Well, yeah, no, like we have a massive insane. gas tax, right, which is why we have no pollution. Right. But um, <laughs> so all this stuff's compounded, and then poor Biden has not had – the domestic communication toolbox to be able to deal with it. Build Back Better, it sounds to me like a chain of chiropractors. Why they didn't fight a bumper sticker fight on how would you like child care and cheaper prescription drugs that do nothing Republicans are in the way. Something simple you can fight over. Instead, you know, they had the big ideological agenda. He was made to look weak by the, the lefties in the House, the squad, et cetera, small in number but big in volume. And they just got tied up in their own stuff. The one great thing they did, infrastructure, they never got any credit for it because they were on to massive spending, FDR 2.0, and all this stuff that, of course, broke up on the rocks predictably. So I would say communications and competence on the domestic policy side by Biden, massive economic shock around the world from multiple causes, from Ukraine, oil, supply chain problems, and all that. So now gas and groceries is killing them, killing them. And in politics, if you're getting killed on the fundamental economic reality of the average American family, you're toast. So just on on, um, that first year, uh, pre-gas and groceries, to your point, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, I think got something like 17 Republican senators to vote for it. It was good. 
if you think about the rationale for Biden, it was a I won't be Trump. So let's just start with that. I won't right. be Trump. Uh, so I'll so, end the pain. Right. So 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 there won't be the same level of what many people thought was just pure crazy in our politics. I won't be Trump. I'll be boring. I'll be dull. And I've been around Washington for a long time, so I'll make Washington work again. And it was like he was handed a gift to demonstrate that this is the guy that can make Washington work again because he got this bipartisan infrastructure bill. He got Republicans who normally don't wouldn't vote for anything led or supported by a Democratic president. And there they are. And it was like almost like he was he was annoyed that that was supposed to be the the big accomplishment. It was like it was like it wasn't enough. And he just dismissed this big win. And then all you saw in the frame was the progressive caucus in the House seeming to run the show. So there goes your boring, you know, boring and not Trump image out the window because you got a new cast of characters. And they made him look weak. And a president can't look weak. So explain. What what do you mean they made him look weak? Well, Pelosi, who's been a very effective speaker in her career, couldn't control him. They couldn't call a vote on the president's signature domestic policy agenda. They didn't have the votes in the caucus. They had a classic Democratic open slappy fight about it, you know, with these backbench members saying, no, I don't think I'm going to go with the White House. They haven't met my conditions. And then you had a couple of these poor, horrified moderates who know they're the first to lose in a tough election cycle trying to save themselves. And and Biden just kind of watched the thing from afar. They actually rolled him to the hill. President doesn't go to the hill a lot. Uh, in a caucus meeting, he didn't ask for the order and, and, you know, and try to close them hard. So the president became kind of a doddering spectator, which has been the beginning of the erosion of the perception of Biden as being large and in charge, which is kryptonite for a president. And, the, you know, you mentioned FDR or you could look at LBJ. And if, if the idea was to model, if Ron Klain and others like genius idea was to model Biden off after LBJ and FDR, you look at the electoral mandates they had, they had massive majorities yeah. in Congress. Biden does not have massive majorities in Congress. There was almost like this decision by voters to split tickets. They weren't ready to give Biden this this huge mandate. They wanted him to replace Trump, but it's not clear they wanted some kind of progressive movement agenda to take over Absolutely. Washington. Absolutely. Look at how the House did on Biden's ballot. It's pretty rare in American history where the president's party dramatically underperforms the president, a new president's election in a presidential election. There was actually some breaks on the House because voters were worried about the progressives. And, you know, the, with the, the Biden folks who are smart folks, I know and like Ron. I, I think he's a smart guy. But I don't understand going into that environment where it's narrow where they didn't do so well in the House, where an ideological campaign hurt them, and then thinking, all right, on this, you know, this razor's edge we're on politically, we're going to swing for the fences with a bunch of big lefty stuff that isn't the Biden brand, by the way. Remember, he's the guy who was against single-payer health care. He was a guy in the primaries who was saying, whoa, Bernie, slow down with the big taxes a little bit. Uh, it just, the whole thing kind of jumped the rails and and I think Biden, by his nature, is an LBJ type who is good at the inside game in the Senate. He got the infrastructure thing done. You got to give him kudos there. But he's not a mass communication politician. And then he's got the Republicans. It's not it's not the old era, era of American politics. Well, let's give the president a few things his first year. Even Reagan had that going for him with the Democrats. You know, our guys now and I'm still in the party trying to fix it from the inside, but it's thin oxygen. They, they act like the famous cannibal king. You know, he's always sending telegrams, send me another ambassador for more peace talks. The last one was so delicious. So, you know, our, our guys don't want to do a deal. They, they want to either win or destroy. 
Uh, and th that's why the, the bipartisan infrastructure thing was pretty damn impressive. But we never heard about it because immediately we're, we're off to the new New Deal and the ma and trillions of spending. I mean, they were advocating. They didn't get it thanks to Manchin and others. But in real dollars, they wanted basically to spend World War II all over again on top of all the COVID stuff. And shocker, now we have crippling inflation. Even though they didn't get it psychologically, the idea of fiscal restraint, which, by the way, to be fair, the Republicans are terrible at too, um, has vanished from the Washington debate. Maybe it'll make a comeback now. I, I kind of think it will. So if you were advising Joe Biden heading in, in this next year, uh, or let's say these next few months, we'll get, we'll get to after November 2022 in a, in a minute, but just in the next few months advising him, uh, well, let's assume that the House is, is going to go Republican, the Senate probably a coin toss. We can talk about that. Now, j j just for our listeners, Mike, would you say general rule of thumb, right? You look at any congressional district, and you can look at the generic ballot, the polling, Democrat versus Republican, and you look at the president's approval rating. And if the generic ballot face favors the Republican in any congressional district and the presidential approval rating is as low as Joe Biden's, it's likely that could be your determinant about whether or not a Republican is going to win that seat, right? Yeah, and we've declared a bipartisan war on swing seats. There's not as much room to move in the Congress now because all incumbents love the idea of a safe seat. So now primaries rule the world in some ways more than the general election. But yeah, all the indicators say, and, and this has historically been true of first-term elections, re, you know, the first congressional uh, midterm in a new president, it's going to be really bad for Biden. There's going to be a big Republican wave. And that makes life easy for the Republicans because you can nominate a bag of cement in some places and actually win uh, a race you might not have won before. And that's where the Senate kind of gets interesting because of some of the candidates there. But it, uh, the big problem for Biden is they're losing time. I mean, if I, I was in the Biden politics world three months ago, I would have said, blow all this shit up, give a fiery speech about the do-nothing Republicans and start a big war on prescription drugs and extending the child care benefit. That's it. That's the bumper sticker, us versus them. Get Biden out there fighting and simplify this for everybody. And by the way, after 30 days of fighting, say, damn right I'm running for re-election. Now, you may not run for re-election, but re right now he's dying by a thousand cuts because, yeah. you know, we're in this new world where everything's transparent. So every ambitious senator's whispering, oh, I'm getting a lot of calls to New Hampshire. They really want Pendergast. And, you know, it's all over the front page of New York Times with speculation of how dead is Biden? When will he drop out? It's all kryptonite for his narrative, and he, he can't have it. But they're burning the biggest resource you've got in a, in a campaign or a political fight, which is time. And they, they basically run out. I mean, they can, they can try a little summer offense here. I'm sure they will. It'll be helpful. But the House is looking very grim for them. And the Senate, even where they have on-the-ground advantages in candidate recruitment and things like that, is looking scary. And and they have a slim majority, the Democrats. So it's right. a, no they don't have a lot of cushion. So what, yeah. six seats or something? So I mean, they it, it doesn't take much. E even even if not everything goes the Republicans' way, it's still pretty hard for them to screw up winning the majority. Because right, not it's kind of like you know being a a tidal wave prevention engineer. Well, with a billion pounds of concrete, we can handle an eight foot surge. Well, you know, it, uh, right now there's a twelve foot surge out there. And the question is, when it gets to shore, how big will it be? So you were you've been involved one way or the other in almost uh, every every election cycle over the last 30, 40 years. Yeah, time to retire. Okay, so I've done enough damage. We, we worked together in '94. You were doing the Michigan Senate race for Spence. You were doing Angler's reelect. You were doing 
the Virginia Senate race, right? That's Holly right, North. Colonel North, right? The Colonel North. I, the chair I, I, is I against the wall. Weren't you doing, I forget, anyways. You're, oh, Terry you're Branstad out in Iowa. Right. I, I used to do all so the Republican guard, Tommy Thompson, all kinds of Right, right, right. So, so one of, and then and you did, so 94 was interesting, an interesting comp because it was the first midterm of the Clinton term, and this was very much a rejection of, of Clinton, and then you were involved in the 2010 cycle in a gubernatorial race uh, in California, also a, a similar dynamic nationally uh, in terms of first, first midterm of a, a new president, uh, President Obama. How does this environment, based on your very oh, direct it, involvement in those cycles, how, how does it feel? You know, there? it's a 94 situation or an 82, if you go from the Democratic point of view. Um, it is two years in, frustration, opposition party having a very easy time of it. They're kind of born on third base. Uh, and people are simply out there to punish the president and the president's party. The difference is the battlefield is a little more contained now because we've gotten rid of probably 30 swing congressional seats we used to have. But still, it, it, it's bad, and those things are hard. I mean, I'm old enough. The first cycle is a young punk, and I, I feel a little bit like we're doing the music podcast here, and I'm like Herman's Hermits going through that first <laughs> big hit. You know, I hate to age myself like this. Uh, but it was 1982. I was in college, and but I was an intern at National Conservative PAC, NICPAC, and we were doing independent expenditures. So they kind of pioneered the independent expenditure, and the idea was incumbents are hard to beat. Challengers don't have enough money, and they have to define themselves. So an out-of-state group can come in and say, hey, here are three things about Congressman Dan Senor you didn't know. Terrible junket, voted to raise his own pay, bad dancer, you know, whatever the three things are. So the independent television tries to slow the incumbent down to give the challenger normally gets squashed some time to grow and breathe. So that was kind of invented by Terry Dolan. And in the, but it was the, it was the 82 cycle where Reagan was new. Remember 1980 was a huge wrong track election. People were pissed at politics. They hated Carter. You, you always know you've got a really mad electorate when a third party pops up. Screw them all. And in that case, it was kind of a wine and cheese thing with John Anderson, the former liberal Republican congressman from Illinois. Uh, later, we would have a populist third party instead of a wine and cheese, you know, kind of French vanilla Republican in Ross Perot. Right. In another huge wrong track presidential year. So anyway, they came out of 80 mad and the economic pain was still there. So they took a bunch of it out on the Republicans. Uh, and I was around for that. And this feels like that. You know, a very simple election, which is enough of that guy and a lot of callbacks. Boy, you know, it was better before. I'm not getting the relief I thought I voted for, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what you will see and the, the Obama guys will tell this story from their bad midterms or a million cases of it uh, in American history. There's many situations where a president's gotten clocked in the midterm of the first term and then had a big comeback. So that's what I want to talk about. OK, so so so. Clinton had a horrendous, you know, Republic, Republicans win the majority for the first time in decades. It's a huge win, super majority. And then Clinton uses them as a cudgel, like a, he triangulates Congress and gets reelected overwhelmingly in 96. Obviously, 2010, Obama loses the midterms. You know, he takes responsibility. He owns it. And then he bounces back and beats Romney in 2012. So... If that is a pattern that's common, uh, and I guess you would say the same was with Reagan and the Democrats, right? In 82 to 84, right? 
Grand yeah, Cafe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you can, you can, I mean, I, I'm generally suspicious of the, you know, if Napoleon had nuclear subs or the unstoppable wave of history. But these patterns do exist. They tend to oscillate. And the question is, is the modern era different? So you can argue for that scenario. Okay, so Biden's going to get clobbered, but then we're going to come out of recession. The Republicans are going to nominate Trump, who's going to run the whole campaign. And I have a list of people who helped steal the election. I'm going to hunt them down one by one. I'm totally crazy now. We're going to have a bumpy time in world affairs, both the South China Sea, Ukraine. So the stakes of the presidency are going to rise. And Trump is now more controversial than ever before. And with enough economic tailwinds, Biden could have the big comeback. It's happened many times before. The other version, the other scenario is in seven of the last eight elections, the party in power has been punished. So we don't oscillate anymore. We just get out the hammer and smash who's ever in front of us. We're now the Hulk smash electorate. So Republicans get clobbered in 2018 in the midterms, and then Trump, rather than bounce back, loses the midterms. I mean, loses the presidency. Yeah, because Biden gets clobbered, too. He gets the primary, or he more likely resigns. And there's a fresh young Democrat versus insane Trump. Another scenario, and this is one I actually, you know, who knows? The future is very uncertain. But there are early signs, I think, that Trump in the last year by his own crazy behavior and Trump fatigue and also even the stuff coming out in the hearings now, as we used to say in body shops in my home uh, town of Detroit after an accident, you know, the car looks okay, but you got your frame bent. It will never drive the same. And I think Trump got his frame bent. And I think there's a lot of talk in the Republican world of what do we do about the Donald? Because Biden's screwing up so bad, we're teed up to win. Trump's old and crazy. If Biden runs again, he'll be old. We're say he's crazy. What about a fresh, young, pretty populist that the base could live with who's smart from a big swing state? Maybe even somebody with a couple extra vowels in his name to show we're not a bunch of racists. Who could that be? Well, there's a guy thinking like that, you know, the Harvard graduate down in Tallahassee. Um, uh, you know, so those wheels could turn. And then the, the GOP gets a generational race if Biden runs again, which is a good thing to have, especially if a big state governor can say, I'm not part of this Washington mess. That, that, the governor versus Washington thing has worked a lot in, in political history. So there are a lot of different permutations here. You and can why see is the generational comeback. race typically one to bet on? Um, the, the, the generational race, you know, doesn't always work, but generally the older, slower bear doesn't do well in the comparison, Bob Dole and Bill Clinton, Jack Kennedy, you know, it, 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 when, when you get a young candidate with some spark, Obama, yeah, Obama, right. That's another great example. Um, it, uh, it can work. Now it doesn't always work. Somebody's yelling at their podcasting device right now, Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. Um, right. which is true, but you know, they're, they're, let me put it this way. I have never, whenever you have a wrong track, angry electorate and flawed candidates everywhere, that is a recipe for surprise, not conventional wisdom being true. And as you guys mentioned on, on hacks on tap, you know, but if Biden runs for a second term, by the end of his second term, he'll be closer to 90 years old than 80. Yeah. W- which is why. With the affection as a human I have for Joe Biden, I th- I don't think in our modern politics where everything's transparent, and everything's all over the social media, and the the broadsheet newspapers now are all electronic and are chasing the story of the minute. I don't think a president can survive 
a midterm wipeout with the specter of Trump and the scary going to take over the Republican Constitution hating Republicans like they could in the old days. So I think the party is going to eat Biden if he gets wiped out in the midterms. Yeah. And uh, you, force you know, him if out. you think about it, the if you look at who our presidents in the 90s and the early aughts, you look at, you know, you look at Bill Clinton, or even look at his vice president, Al Gore, and you look at George W. Bush in the early, you know, 2000, 2008, all those presidents and vice president who were president and vice president, you know, 20, 20, 30 years ago are still younger today than Joe Biden and, and Donald Trump. Oh, yeah. No, no. It, it is it, it, it is crazy. And I have a lot of Democratic friends who say, no, no, the party will. You know, if you look at LBJ and the Vietnam War, which broke him politically and he didn't run again, for Democrats who see the threat to our institutions, and I, I see it too, it terrifies me, um, this kind of new little fascist whiff we have, what was clearly an attempt to steal the election, the Trump craziness, Trump coming back, that is the Vietnam War of right now in politics on the Democratic side. And if they think Biden's a slow pony, I think they're going to try to get him. The problem is they may replace him with somebody more ideological, more pure identity politics driven, and they may blow it that way, which they're totally capable of doing. Now, I should say there is a scenario for a Biden comeback on all this. So Biden loses the midterms and the party's chirping at him. But the Republicans, because they're having an auction, maybe Trump turns on Kevin McCarthy, started to rumble at him a little bit. You know, Kevin's the most fun guy in politics to torture. Trump clearly enjoys doing that. Uh, but there becomes an auction to appease Trump's grievances there. And all of a sudden, the Republicans are talking about impeaching Biden again. Mm-hmm. You know, he ate with too many salad forks. His son, you know, drove through a red light or whatever. You know, some kabuki theater. Then there might be a snapback in the Democratic Party, stand by our guy, big battle, particularly if there's some green shoots of economic progress. That would do yeah. so much for Biden. Now, who knows? But there is a scenario where rally the wagons and fight. Uh, so house races tend to be shaped more by the national macro environment. You get a big wave it, for the reasons we were just describing yep. earlier. The Senate is different in that candidate quality. The individual races can matter a lot more. You've run a lot of Senate races. Uh, so you could get a situation where the Republicans win the House overwhelmingly, but don't don't win back the Senate. And they they only need to net a seat to win the Senate. So it, it should seem very manageable. I just want to go quickly through the map. So in order for the Republicans to win the Senate, they have to defend Florida. Rubio should be fine. They have to defend Wisconsin. Ron Johnson seems to be doing okay, and it sounds like they're going to... You pull ra- out today. He, he's in a race. See who wins that primary. Some of the Dems in, on August 9th are pretty formidable. Others are going to be easier for Johnson to run against. Okay. And Johnson's got this problem where, hey, yeah. somebody dropped off a, a lost shoe at the front desk, and I, I told the interns to call J.C. Penney, and they didn't want it. No, not quite. Right. You know, he's not going to slip that news quite so easily. So that that one is still a pretty tough race. But you're right; he'll be helped by the inflation, gas, and grocery tail. And and if the Democrats nominate a, a hyper progressive, right, he's right. in much better shape. Okay, so then then you look. The Republicans have to defend. North Carolina, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. North Carolina sounds like they'll be fine. What do you, do you Ohio probably fine, Pro- but probably J- fine. JD Vance Ryan isn't is exactly transitioned from a Republican primary mindset to a general election mindset. Yeah, I mean all these places, and you know, I 
I know J.D. Vance. We used to have a couple of great calls about the Trump problem and how to run for Senate against the Trump party. And then he had that terrible head injury or whatever the hell happened there. So I'm, I'm hoping he loses, frankly. Uh, and I'm not excited about a liberal Senate. But he right now is on the glide path to win. All, all these races where we have a flawed-ish candidate and they have somebody on paper like Tim Ryan, the Democratic kind of congressman from a metal-bending district who's culturally pretty good at Ohio politics – this the gas and groceries thing throws an extra two points, four points behind them, and that that covers a lot of small candidate flaws. So but you're right; they, they used to have you at least have something to work with, right. In a Senate race, where you can hopefully make it about advance. I mean, the great example now is Pennsylvania, right? Which could be the most interesting race. Um, on one hand, Fetterman is a Bernie Democrat who ought to be easy for the usual Republican playbook to beat. On the other hand, he's showing a certain uncola anti-politics appeal, and Oz is stumbling out of the gate after a very tough primary against a candidate I think would have been more electable than the general. So that's another one where maybe candidate will make the difference. And then some of these other races, Nevada, New Hampshire, Arizona, Georgia, um, you know, Democrats, it looks like Laxalt will be okay. Republicans will pick up Nevada. New Hampshire, who knows? Arizona looks less likely, but who knows? And Georgia... Also, candidate quality. Who knows with Herschel Walker? Yeah, no, I think on paper he is doing fine, but I think he is uh, uh, he's kind of a movie set. You know, what looks like steel might be painted styrofoam may fold in the end. Uh, I think Nevada is most likely Democratic candidate to lose. There is a working-class Hispanic move toward the populist GOP, which the Democrats are in a bit of denial about. I don't know. It's pretty obvious. We're seeing it a lot. Um, what's happening is the Democrats, and they made this mistake against Trump uh, in Florida. They think the Latino vote is all about identity politics, which is totally wrong. That's one of the ways they blew Dade County. Uh, so I think Nevada will be another hard lesson for him. So, yeah, this is one of these things where it's a coin toss, except the tails has four more grams of copper on it, which is all this economic anti-Biden stuff, which is why the number one thing for all these races, even with the factor that they have local candidate flaws and all the stuff we're talking about, Biden's got to go find seven or eight points of favorable on economic job approval. Ten or twelve would be better. You know, soon, because right now it's Biden's not getting all the habitual Democratic voters behind him on a on a how's he doing on the economy. So until that's fixed, they're really screwed. Now, in a wave election, a real wave that that wave cycles you've worked on, you also can get these surprises, like races that nobody's paying attention, and suddenly they just yeah, get. I mean, eighty had a lot of Senate folks elected who nobody thought would win. Okay. You know, so the one I've been looking at here is Tiffany Smiley, who's a very impressive uh, woman running against Patty Murray in Washington State. Uh, Patty Murray, longtime incumbent, I think probably thought she had a sleepy path to reelection. And this Tiffany Smiley, there's a profile written of her in the New York Times, which is worth reading. Very impressive bio, her story, her husband's story. Um, and she's she's using the, the breakdown in, in order, the civil civil society disorder total breakdown in in seattle which she argues is now spreading to the suburbs and um and she's she's a a, a wife and a mom who's who's not going to take it anymore and right. is and is running <laughs> and there was this article by nelly bowles in the new york times um in the middle soon after the uh the um 
the post-George Floyd riots and was describing, she describes what was going on in Seattle. And in the, New York, and in the Times article, and I'm quoting from Nellie Bowles' piece here, when the occupation in Seattle started in early June, so this is early June 2020, Mayor Jenny Durkin seemed almost amused. She was amused at the fact that Seattle was up in flames and they were abolishing the police and coming up with their own cordon off areas for downtown Seattle that were going to be self-governed by Antifa. And she and, and Mayor uh, Durkin says to uh, to Nellie Bowles, we could have the summer of love that this <laughs> this this crazy meltdown in Seattle was was something to celebrate, to some something to to admire. And and Smiley's kind of running on this. Right. And that well, to me then, is like the kind of sleeper race in this environment. And you're in the I think you're in the land of sleeper races. You're in California. So where you're seeing all sorts of surprises. So I know you're, you're, you've been following the L.A. race, L.A. mayor's race closely. You've been following what's happening in San Francisco with the Chase uh, Boudin recall in the DA, DA's office. So just you're there. You're following close. You've been involved with California politics a long time. Are these quality of life issues really trumping ideology? Oh, I think I think they're incredibly powerful. I, I do. We're, we're in a moment. I mean, the, the San Francisco is as liberal as people say. I mean, that the, the board of commissioners there, Bernie Sanders, would be like, "Lordy, these people are something else." Um, he'd be shocked, you know. Um, so, in look what happened: the, the overwhelmingly Democratic progressive city couldn't fire their DA who's, you know, one of these super progressive DAs who think we ought to kind of get out of the hole, go into jail business and do more holistic curing, uh, threw him out of office on a rocket ship. I mean, it wasn't subtle. And there's a recall here against George Gascon, who's the L.A. super progressive DA, who doesn't really believe we ought to bum out people with, you know, sentences for criminal misdemeanors and even, even some other stuff. So the quality of life stuff, we saw it in the New York mayor's, race too. I mean, the, the New York City mayoral primary is one of the biggest progressive electorates in the country, probably the biggest. Um, and it uh, it was pretty clear the top two candidates, including the winner, Eric Adams, were were, were not running. I mean, the, the sheriff here in L.A. County, and you got to con don't confuse L.A. County, L.A. City. L.A. County is 10 million people. L.A. City is significantly smaller. So L.A. City doesn't include like capitalists from Beverly Hills. Right. It doesn't. Right. It, you know, when people, when I say, hey, L.A. mayor's race, they figure, oh, it's probably movie stars driving around in Bentleys with right. yard signs and everything. Yeah, there's some of that, but it's a little different. Anyway, I mean, we have had Snoop Dogg and Kardashian endorsements and stuff, but um, it's, uh, it, 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 there, there is no doubt that the normal formulation in this mayor's race here, where we just had the primary. It's not partisan, but we had the primary. And now you got two candidates going, the kind of two who are expected into the general election, uh, is a classic battle, wrestling match between, come on, do what you normally do. It's a democratic city. I mean, the city of LA, Bernie beat Biden here. So, you know, this is not a right-wing place. Republican numbers in the city are probably about 11, 12 percent, best case. Um, and after these hearings, uh, my guess is they're down to nine for a while because nobody will admit it on a poll. So you've got Rick Caruso, a friend of mine, disclosure, I'm for Rick, who is a very successful mall developer. He's kind of his own lifestyle brand. He's quite an impressive guy. He's and been he's been in, I mean, people are trying to paint him as a 
Republican that just flipped a Democrat for opportunistic reasons, but I, he's been involved in Democratic politics no, before, No, no, so right? the deal is Rick was a get-it-done business guy, started out working for Tom Bradley, uh, who was mayor. Then he was successful with Branton running the police commission, done a lot. Developer, huge charity guy all over, uh, charter schools, uh, Catholic stuff, et cetera, et cetera. He was a Republican, you know, gave money to Republicans, which they're attacking him for. In 2010, he supported Jerry Brown for governor. In 2011, he left the Republican Party to become an independent. He was anti-Trump. Then when Trump came around in 16, he got behind Kasich as a way to beat Trump, and he briefly re-registered Republican because he didn't want to embarrass Kasich because he had a leadership job in the campaign. And then he popped right back to independent. Recently, he went all the way to Democrat. But he's kind of been a functional Democrat for a pretty long time here. He's given both parties, given to most of his opponents. Uh, and he's running as the guy, you know, the, the sheriff here is a funny line. The sheriff's in trouble, too. He's kind of a uh, – I think he might win on the same issues we're talking about, but he's been controversial. But what he says is, you know, everybody in L.A. is a liberal to a homeless guy shits on your lawn and pulls a knife on your kid. And, you know, the, the, Caruso is running on a, a very tough love which is kind of two strikes and then the cops are going to clear you because we're under a, a complicated situation I won't bore everybody with. But fundamentally, if the homeless want to put a tent on your front lawn, they're pretty much allowed to do it around the sidewalk uh, right in front of your house. And we, we have about 40 percent of the homeless population of the country here in California now. Wow. And so it, you walk through. I mean, we, look, I've, I've got a young daughter. We deal with it driving around. She's getting flashed all the time. My naked homeless guys at bus stations. You know, we just learned eyes. Syringes on sub sidewalks. People. Oh yeah, yeah. We, we're having a right. comeback of middle age diseases, and so, it, it, so there's fury, and the cops are all not getting out of their cars and afraid. The L.A. Unified School District cops were banned last year by the school board from being able to walk post on school campuses. They have to be called in. I mean, so we're in, we're in some crazy stuff here. So that has given huge fuel to Caruso's campaign, and he's writing checks like crazy, spending a lot of money. The media's up in arms about that. Karen Bass, who you might remember from the president's yep. shortlist, yep. is a longtime Democratic activist, powerful member of the assembly, was speaker. And I will say, as a Democrat, a fairly effective speaker. I worked with her back in the Arnold days. She was a compromiser. But she comes out of the progressive side. Then she went to Congress. But by, by the way, Paul Ryan, when he was speaker, says that Karen Bass, he, he found her very easy and responsible to work with. Was no, not totally. Extreme, She's a grown-up. No very doubt about practical. it. practical. Yeah. Uh, and so she's running as kind of the, the, the Democrat. Um, and she has that long history of kind of getting, you know, stuff, at least in Congress in Sacramento done. The criticism is you've been here 20 years. What have you done? The city's a mess and you're, you're part of the club. You're never going to tell anybody you're fired. Well, Caruso's like, I'm going to declare an emergency, you know? So Caruso's action Jackson. She is, we're a city that gets along. We're comfortable. We have a lot of problems we need to address, thoughtful, but election night, Caruso, who having spent 30 some million dollars, had the early lead, but we vote by mail here. So sure enough, two weeks later, when they're done counting the votes, Caruso's gone from six points up to seven points behind. So the conventional wisdom is now bass, bass, bass. The truth is it's going to be a competitive race. It's going to be the quality of life change candidate Caruso versus the comfortable Democrat. You can't have a guy like Caruso who gave money to a pro-life politician in 1998 uh, be mayor of this progressive city. Some class warfare. He's a rich guy, so he's evil. Uh, I think Caruso's the underdog, but I think he, he's got the stronger message, and we're at a moment where candidate, candidacies like that can work. 
And just the fact, even if he loses, just the fact that he's in the runoff. That he's alive. He's game, yeah. yeah. That tells you about as much as anything about what's going on both in California and nationally, the guy like that. Right. Is and, and the other footnote is, which part of the perfect storm, normally L.A. mayor's races are in the off year, so nobody votes and the unions can kind of pick a candidate. This time is going to be in November uh, in the general election with a much higher turnout probably than is likely for an L.A. mayor's race, which means more casual voters may be pulled in by being furious about the horrible quality of life in the city. On the other hand, the Basque people will argue that more casual Democrats in California will be brought in. And in the end, you know, it, it, this thing, will, it, Rick, will be defeated. Th- this will come down to do people believe Karen's line about Rick, which is he's a rich Republican billionaire pro-life zealot, or will they believe Rick's line about Karen, which is she is more the same, the city will stay bad and get worse. If you want change, you can't vote for her. Who's closer to the caricature? And I think Rick has an advantage there, but the last three or four points for Rick are going to be tough because it is such a democratic, progressive city. But it's a so, city that's fed up, too. That's, it's a fair fight. So before we let you go, two, two more questions. So if, if the national environment, which is also shaping these races locally, the you know, gas, groceries, quality of life issues, when I ask my Democratic friends, Democratic operatives, so what, like, what issue shakes things up for you what issue energizes your base what's your and they point to the dobbs decision they point to the supreme court overturning yeah. rover versus wade or over or some version of overturning Roe versus wade whether it was the exact alito drafter or some derivative of that you're a little more skeptical that it has that that the the debate over Roe is a clear winner for the Democrats, given where they are heading into November. Well, I, I think it's a just the politics of it. I think it will be a useful tool for them. It'll give them something they don't have now. What it brings them, one, a ton of money, but they already have a ton of money. But Meaning grass, you know, all these yeah, activists, yeah. Democratic yeah, activists, suddenly feel fundraising. everything's at stake. They will have huge activist energy uh, at all levels, not just a federal fight. It'll get into local state stuff. You know, a lot of Republican office holders like the pro-life issue. They don't want the pro-life issue to become reality and shake the deck up a little. So suburban Republicans will be very nervous. The most pro-choice voter group is young men, men 18 to 34, and they tend not to show up in the off year. And they so hold on, that's Democratic. interesting. So you, you're, in your experience, Democratic men under 40 are more reliably pro-choice yeah, you can women under 40. Absolutely. I mean, the one invisible person in America who are at least one out of five beating hearts in this country are pro-life women. Try to find one on network TV or anywhere. You know, they don't right. exist. But in pop culture, cable news, you know, they, they're, they're not there. Right. Um, but they're out there in voter world. And young men tend to be very pro-choice. So the question is, the big Democratic problem that they always have big trouble solving, they normally can't solve it, is getting younger voters to vote in the off year, particularly younger men. Well, here's a reason, maybe. Um, So that helps them. So I see a lot of, you know, pluses, suburban districts, changes the subject for a month because the media will be massively obsessed about it, as will a lot of voters. So fair enough. Is it enough to overcome gas and groceries? If Biden can get his economic perceptions back and we have come back and we're in a different kind of economic range on October 1 and this is going on, it could tilt some center races. That's where it could make a difference. Then in Pennsylvania, you know, mm-hmm. so it gives the Democrats a big tool to work with they haven't had before. 
but is it as big as gas and groceries across the whole country? Because there are also pro-life places in the upper Midwest and other where there are enthusiastic pro-life voters. So it, it, it's not quite the Manhattan home run, it feels like, on cable news. But net-net, it's, it, it is good politics for the Democrat if it, Democrats if it happened. I just don't think it's as big as gas and guns. She was, well, guns are another issue where the right. suburbs could turn, but now they've actually done something. So some of that anger is probably diminishing. Before Bottom we let line, you go. It's good for the Dems, but I don't think it's a, a solve all by any means. Before we let you go, um, so I, I, I was full disclosure involved in the uh, Pennsylvania Senate race, and I watched some, a lot of these races take shape. In Pennsylvania, uh, I was for McCormick in the primary, um, but I obviously had an eye on some of these other races, I said. And I was struck watching the gubernatorial race where you had this, you know, unapologetic Trump supporter, Doug Mastriano, you know, uh, you, you can read what he said about January 6th. I don't need to quote him uh, and, and his general support for— Yeah, batshit crazy, basically. And, oh, oh. and then I watched the numbers and saw the Democrats— we're spending more money in the Republican primary to help Doug Mastriano win the primary than they were spent than than like Shapiro, who's the Democrat AG, who won the Democratic nomination for governor, than he was spending on his own race. So they were working hard to get Mastriano thinking, as I remind my Democratic friends, much like many of them thought in 2016, oh, it'd be great if Trump win, wins the nomination. If Trump wins the nomination, then Hillary's got this in the bag. Right. And I'm seeing this now in different parts of the country where Democrats are supporting, you know, at, at a time we're all watching these January 6th hearings and there's all this concern, in many cases very with good reason about the future of our Democrat, our future of our small D Democratic institutions. And then you have, and, I, and I'm not making, this is not moral equivalence, but it's just important to put a spotlight on, it seems like they're playing with fire a little bit by trying to elect, they're trying to help nominate Republicans who they think will be the least electable, but in an environment like this, it's not clear that some of them won't win. Yeah, no, no, no. It's very dangerous stuff. It's like some Russian general right now is pitching Putin. One small nuke and the West will back down and make peace immediately on your terms. All you got to do is blow up two villages. Um, it, it is, it, it's an old tactic. It's been done a lot where you spend money from your campaign in the other person's primary with an ad of, boy, he loves Trump too much. He's too tough on the border. He's too tough on auditing the election and help that clown win. And then, ha ha, we got him beat. But when you got a kook like Mastriano who would want to subvert the electoral college and his governor of Pennsylvania would have some power and he got a wave election where boxes cement might win. You know, is, is Josh should look in the mirror and say, really, am I so important that I got to try to rig my general election where I ought to be able to win on my own by playing with anthrax canisters and nerve gas here? Really? Right. And, and if you look Josh at Josh Shapiro is that important to the world that he's going to want to do. And they, they, he did. And other it's going on in Illinois, too, but not not at the Mastriano, Mastermind, not at the crazy ass Republican potential governor level. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm, and I've been making noise about this. It doesn't, it's been done, but now latest poll, four points on right. this margin of error. Now I think yeah, Shapiro for our listeners, will so New USA Today poll run. just came out and, and, and Shapiro is only beating Mastriano by four points. It's a little too close for comfort in an environment like this. Right. Again, you know, where it's, uh, Hey, that new, that new experimental plane with the nuclear bomb, let's fly it around Manhattan between skyscrapers. Cause it'll be fun and I'll make Lieutenant Colonel. Okay, Josh. Thank you. Right. 
No, so the New York Times just uh, Jan- June 16th, so just a few days ago, had a piece out by Jonathan Weissman. It says, as Democratic leaders warn loudly of right-wing threats to democracy, their campaign arms are meddling in Republican primaries, betting they can help pick easier opponents in November. And the title of the piece is Democrats' Risky Bet, a, Geo- a GOP extremist in spring hoping to beat them in the fall. Yeah, playing with fire. Now, that said, vote for Josh Shapiro. <laughs> It is always great to join you All here right, on thanks, America's second best it. podcast after Hacks say, on well, you Tap. Know, I, Hacks on Tap, it's more of like a niche play, but uh, <laughs> but, but we like we like. You do you the vast play. canvas of, of world affairs, security <laughs> issues, small engine repair, dating advice. You cover the whole waterfront here. All right, Mike, thanks for being with us. We'll get <laughs> Thank you back. Thank you, pal. Have a great day. See you. All right, see you. That's our show for today. To keep up with Mike Murphy, you can follow him on Twitter, at MurphyMike. And also, as I mentioned earlier, subscribe to the Hacks on Tap podcast and to the Hacks on Tap newsletter. That's hacksontap.bulletin.com. Call Me Back is produced by Lon Benatar. Until next time, I'm your host, Dan Senor. Dan Senor.